0: So on yesterday, when we were done with all of the T-Ball stuff, following T-Ball, my children began to talk about sayings that seemed old to them. My son has a way now of wanting to put everything in quotes. And so he was talking and saying some things, and I can't even remember where they were going with this in the back seat, he and my daughter. And then I look in the rearview mirror, and he's talking about those old sayings. For us, we some of us call those maybe old school. As they were speaking, one particular saying came to mind. It was one that they had not heard. So of course that made it truly old. I told them how my grandmother would often use the expression, a sight for sore eyes. A sight for sore eyes. Some of you may have heard it. And not so much in New York, I don't think, but or at least not commonly used. But if you have any ties to the South, perhaps, or some people who may have been exposed to some of these Southern idioms, it may be slightly familiar to you. My children wanted to hear more about this adage. I explained to them it is an expression used when you are happy to see someone whom you haven't seen in a while. My son said immediately he's ready to see his teachers on tomorrow. He was eager to say, I'm going to tell Mrs. Brown's, she's a sight for sore eyes, I'm going to tell Mrs. Neville, she's a sight for sore eyes. And my daughter just scoffed and didn't necessarily agree. She turned her head, in fact, and sucked her teeth. I told her it was the mind of a kindergartner speaking. Let him have his moment. He'll be happy to see his teachers again on Monday. And so here is one who seemed to miss his teacher, his rabbi, his Lord. I can imagine that having missed the appearance of Jesus along with his crew of fellow disciples the first time, this might have been the expression Thomas made, a sight for sore eyes didn't you hear it in the reading of the gospel? So the other disciples told him, the gospel says, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. The beauty in reading this gospel is that it places the humanity of Thomas front and center, in Luke's account, Jesus invites the disciples to press the flesh, if you will. I had always wondered how Thomas could justify flatly rejecting the report of his traveling companions. Wouldn't he want to receive their news and be excited because they had witnessed the Lord? But then I thought about it. Who among us would, have, would not have doubts about the one central figure whom you'd see brutally executed just days before. For years, I fell into the trap of deriding doubting Thomas. I now know that it's a different thing altogether to hear the report of your friends secondhand than to see up close the one person you'd place the greatest amount of faith in. Some of us here today, would quickly agree that you may have doubted the personal reports of your friends if you would receive the report that the dead had returned to dwell among the living. Am I right? I think I'm right about it. Not only that, but I would venture to guess that some of us here today heard a different response to our questions when we had been told things that we had doubts around or we were suspicious of. I remember being told that this was—that it was not acceptable to question God. Conversely, my mother would say about any and every other kind of life event, how will you know if you don't ask questions? Asking the question. So the desire Thomas had for proof should not come as a total surprise to us. He was not one quick to be persuaded— He needed to see firsthand and not accept the vicarious experiences of others. He was not quick to believe everything he saw in the newspaper or read on Twitter. He didn't go to Wikipedia to find out the response and to see if that could be cited as a source. He was flatly and surprisingly incredulous to think that that they had seen something that had never happened before. Had they been hallucinating? He might have wondered. What could they have all seen to make a dead man rise? Thomas simply could not accept their evidence. He had to have a tangible and concrete test in order for him to believe. The first reports were suspicious because it was dark or nearly so. The women were strained and overwrought with emotion, possibly even hysterical, by all they had been through, some might suggest. Their eyes were full of tears and did not see clearly. They had imagined, perhaps, what was not there and could not have been there for Christ was dead. And dead people do not rise. Dead people. Do not rise. Thomas was at once saying, I see dead people. But he needed a sign. He needed an assurance. Because when does doubt arise? When there is fear, skepticism, and suspicion. And I would say that as much as we don't want to confess it, there's a little bit of Thomas in each of us. At times there's a little bit of doubt in each of us. Sometimes we hear it when a person experiences something tragic and then they have what we would call a crisis crisis of faith. It could take any number of things. You know, last week while we were in worship, around the world Sri Lankans were worshiping and it was Easter and the bombings came and nearly 300 died. You have some who would ask, how can there be a God when this happens to people? There's a little bit of doubt. And then you had the report of the three churches that burned in Louisiana before that, three historically black churches. And some thought we were over that. And so there's a little bit of doubt that comes back to us. And then yesterday was another synagogue attacked in California on the final day of Passover just enough to bring about a little bit of doubt, just a little bit of doubt. And here is Jesus. Aside from his 10 closest friends, again, that special inner circle, Jesus shows that he is still with the people, with his people. And that's the assurance that I think we need when there are moments of doubt, moments of skepticism, moments of suspicion, There was, yes, an empty tomb. Then there were grave clothes. Then there were angels who were present. Then Jesus speaks to Mary. Then his appearance on the first day of the week. And now this revelation to Thomas. There's a whole lot that's happening in there that for some would raise just a little bit of doubt. But not only was this manifestation a surprise for this reason alone, it was a sight for sore eyes. It was a sight for sore eyes. And yes, here it was that it shows us that there is not a prerequisite for faith through firsthand accounts only of Jesus, but that you might not only hear, but see in little ways as Jesus enters onto the scene for us in our time. What are other possible ways? What are ways that we might be refreshed by the presence of God today through the Son, through the Savior, our brother Jesus, a mother and father welcoming the birth of a child that they didn't know might be possible to have, but they'd prayed fervently for. And when that child arrives into the world, that child is a sight for sore eyes. Just as we had in a nine o'clock service a family present to baptize their little one into the household of faith, on any given day in any season is a sight for sore eyes. Why? Because we're claiming some for the Lord and giving them instruction they will need for life's journey. It would be a sight for sore eyes if we would never have to see children abused or harmed in any way again. That, for God, would be a sight for sore eyes. It would be a sight for sore eyes if God did not have to witness the people attacking each other for their religious beliefs, that no religious institution would be under attack. I'm sure that if we question our God, God would say that would be a sight for sore eyes. It would be a sight for sore eyes if we would pack out the annual benefit next week and shower the graduating families with encouragement and support. Why? because that would say we believe in their journey. That would say that although we recognize that these are families who've had some hard experiences living at or below the federal poverty line, that that does not stop them in what God could do through their lives. That's a sight for sore eyes. It would be a sight for sore eyes if the church of Jesus Christ would be welcoming of all God's children all of God's children. At one time, the conversation was about a black and white divide. Then it was a male-female divide. Now, considering gay and straight, what has, what has the world done to the church of God? It would be a sight for sore eyes. If we could be the beloved community that Dr. King wrote about, It would be a sight for sore eyes if we just saw those who were the most marginalized and oppressed around us and among us to come into the house of faith, work with us to build the kingdom of God. Now that's a sight for sore eyes. Now it is time for us, for us, to bear witness to the living Christ. Blessed are those who have not seen, Jesus said, and yet have come to to believe. That's what John has written about. That's what John in this gospel is telling us. And yes, Thomas may have been given the nickname Doubting Thomas, but it truly has less to do with Thomas and more to do with Jesus. How many of us in our moments of doubt would allow Jesus to be ushered in And come into our lives in such a way that we then see that what we thought was impossible, God can make possible. That's what happens for those who believe. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.